I think that, you know, I, I tend to not want to get too close to the science fiction stories. I find them exciting, but they usually are more fearful. Uh, and I, I don't think we should go into the future based on fear, like X Machine or Black Mirror, that sort of thing. It's entertaining, but the reality is really that the biggest issue today is not all of that stuff, is that we become too much like the tech ourselves. So we're too, we get lazy, we, get, we go for convenience, we forget how to do things, we stop taking care of our bodies. You know, we basically just let go of all the things that make us human because, you know, it seems like an easy way out, like a good shortcut, you know? Hey guys, before we get started, I want to tell you about today's show sponsor, Carta. Carta simplifies how startups manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. Go to carta.com slash syndicate to get 10% off and learn more about how they can help you with managing your complicated cap table and keeping investors happy. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. So you've got a you've got a quote that I like, and it's something to the effect of tech's not what we seek, but how we seek it. And I wanted you to unpack that. Yeah. So over the years, you know, I've been looking quite a bit at the philosophy of, of technology and what it does for us. And I've come to the conclusion that a famous German philosopher once said 50 years ago or so that technology is not what we seek, but how we seek. And I've been using that as a uh, as a variation by saying, you know, we will not find happiness in the cloud or in an AI or in an assistant or even on the screen. What we find there is a kind of a happiness, you know, hedonism in a, in a way, which is a uh, sort of low level happiness. You know, we find good things there, but happiness is a human relationship. You know, it's it's what makes us work. Is relationship experiences is not the technical process of sharing a photo or calling somebody. It is a little bit deeper than that. You know, how do we get back to that? Because I think we've gone. I think we've gone on a ways away from that with with current technology, especially Facebook, etc. Yeah, I think in many ways you could safely say that technology has become its own purpose. So the tool has become the sense. So imagine if you're a carpenter, the hammer becomes the goal of your life, not the house, but the hammer. That's kind of what Facebook has done. <laughs> Facebook has made made itself indispensable and has become essentially a, a, a sort of an echo chamber of itself, an AI that takes our data and just leads us around in circles. And I think this is the uh, thing that's happening when technology becomes too powerful is that we forget who we are. You know, we, we, we think that the tech itself is more important than what we originally tried to do with the tech. Does technology become too powerful or humanity becomes too weak? Well, of course, a little bit of both. But I think, you know, we're naturally looking for shortcuts. You know, we're looking for easy ways. We're looking for convenience. But in many ways, you can safely say now that technology has become so good and so fast and so cheap that it's kind of like convenience over consciousness. Not to say that's always really a bad thing, but when you do it in the extreme, then you sort of abdicate from decision-making. Like, you know, if you use Google Maps, you abdicate using other maps or just finding your own way. That's not a big deal. But if you do that with 50 things in your life, like Tinder, and, you know, you, you abdicate your own decision-making and your own tools, if you do that with 50 things, and if you do it with, with a thousand things in, in 10 years, you know, then I think we'll, we'll be in trouble. You know? When does that become the matrix? I think that, you know, I, I tend to not want to get too close to the science fiction stories. I find them exciting, but they usually are more fearful. Uh, and I, I don't think we should go into the future based on fear, like X Machina, Black Mirror, that sort of thing. It's entertaining, but the reality is really that the biggest issue today is not all of that stuff, is that we become too much like the tech ourselves. 
So we're too, we get lazy, we get we go for convenience, we forget how to do things, we stop taking care of our bodies. You know, we basically just let go of all the things that make us human because you know it seems like an easy way out, like a good shortcut. You know, I mean, evolution is all about shortcuts. Is is the problem that we're in an era now where we've evolved beyond and technologies evolved beyond what we're evolutionarily capable or evolutionarily designed to handle? Well, I think the biggest step right now is that we're moving towards a world where we can augment ourselves. We can, as Ray Kurzweil says, transcend humanity. Or you know, transcend our limitations, which is more likely. And that becomes extremely dangerous because then we're essentially reprogramming ourselves. So not just the way that we think or, or that we use a smartphone or virtual reality or whatever whatever you want. Uh, we're actually going to be different as, as, a, uh, as a species. And I think at that point, I would say, if I can't get out of bed in the morning without connecting to the neural network on the internet in some way, then I'm in deep trouble. And I, I don't think that's the right direction for us to take. I think it'll be technically feasible, but uh, morally probably indefensible. Won't it also be a slippery slope, though? Those are the kind of things where a little builds on a little, builds on a little. We give up our privacy we suddenly have these phones in our pockets then we let these phones have notifications and then suddenly we're plugging earbuds in is is there a I understand on a personal level, I think individuals are able to resist, but the collective seems to have that that slippery slope, that gravity that almost feels inevitable. Yeah, I mean, we're doing this with many things. This is not new. I mean, we're doing this with drugs and alcohol and cigarettes and social contracts. You know, we have social contracts, we have regulation, we have enforcement, we have police, we have all kinds of things that make sure that we do certain things not too much. For example, you know, here in, in, in Switzerland, Germany, most kids can buy alcohol. Even if you're 12 or 13 years old, you can buy alcohol, not legal. Legally, but it's easy, right? So uh, that doesn't mean kids will start drinking brandy at five in the morning or, or before they go to school. So, so it's basically there's many reasons why things work or why they don't work, and some of them work on things like moratoriums or non-proliferation treaties like nuclear. And we will need to find a stepwise approach that says you can do this, but if you do that, then you've taken it too far. And that's kind of what we do with many things. So it's like obesity, right? Same thing. I call this sometimes digital obesity. You can eat as much as you want. It's not forbidden. Uh, and hence, we have many sick people who are you know, seriously obese. Now, you can consume the internet in the same way and become what I call digitally obese. Yeah, that's not forbidden. But nevertheless, we should have precautions against people doing those things and, and helping them to find a way out and set a public standard that says that obesity is not normal. You know, it's a problem. It's it's a serious problem. Do you think it's dangerous when 29% body fat's okay and 31% is obese? We kind of have that cutoff line with this completely arbitrary. Yeah, that may be in this case. But, you know, we're talking about body issues here. That's really quite different than digital issues because what we have here is, is first and foremost, industries around the world, the top 20 digital companies in the world that are literally making hundreds of trillions of dollars of money. So the problem here isn't health. The problem is irresistible temptation. But it's that cutoff line. So what is what is internet addiction? Is it four hours a day? Is it six? Is it half an hour a day? It's kind of, it's kind of the same question. It's just a different metaphor. Yes, absolutely. But you know the cutoff line. I think uh, the CEO of Apple, Tim Cook, said it pretty well. It's it's uh, these are tools. When you get hooked on them, we will warn you, and we will have a new app that warns you, and then you can still decide. But you know, many people have already resorted to their kids not using those devices for some time. And I think we need to think about not a black or white approach, but an approach of like like we do with drugs, with many drugs, including, of course, California, right? Legalizing drugs to a large degree. We have to find a way uh, to balance the good with the bad, because too much of a good thing is a very bad thing. Uh, and that's something that's a constant human quest. I mean, this is not new. It's just bigger. It is definitely bigger. I know you've talked in the past before about the Jurassic Park of, of big tech and what's coming. 
And I want to I want to jump a little bit into that in terms of what you're most excited about, what you're worried about, and where you see us headed. Well, I'm I'm very excited about technology in general. I think you know we're approaching a period of the next ten, maybe twenty years, where we can solve really vast global problems using technology like water, uh, food, uh, all the implications, diseases, energy. We can switch to renewable energy, despite of what happened in North America right now. We're, we're switching to renewable energy. So there's many many things that we can deal with now using technology, but we have to have the political will to share the benefits of this. And we have to also find a way of saying that we would deal with what's called the externalities, the outside effects of technology. For example, the externality of Facebook is loneliness in users, it's manipulation, it's all of those things, and they have to be dealt with rather than saying, well, we don't use social media. So, you know, this is like the oil industry has to now put up with the externalities, which is pollution. And we have to address all these things, or we have to change our behavior. I think this is what I'm excited about this process. It doesn't mean that it's in principle good or bad. It's just the governance and the, the way that we deal with these new powers. That is That will take a lot of more time and efforts and money uh, to clear away so that we have a good future. There's really two different ways for dealing with the governance, three different ways. You have, you have China's more communist centralized control approach. You have something more akin to the U.S. or other potentially European countries where you have some type of elected elected minority leaders, et cetera, and groups. And then you have Switzerland's direct democracy approach. What do you see for the future of politics and how people can control, regulate, and change it? Yeah, so of course, this is a vast question. But basically, there's two things happening here. First, politicians should all basically pass a test for the future. They should all know about what's coming, the stuff that we talk about, the stuff that everybody talks about, except for the politicians, you know, <laughs> cloud computing, quantum computing, genetic engineering. They should pass a test on this so that they can become future-proof and uh, and kind of you know aware of these things, which they currently are not. And in order for politics to work, it, it needs to be professionalized. For example, what we have here in Switzerland is many politicians aren't professionals. And that works fine when you're when you're dealing with you know the local media law or something like that. But when you're going to decide on human engineering of, of the genome, uh, that's a lot, that's a different discussion. So I have suggested many times also in my book, Technology versus Humanity, that we should have a digital ethics council, like the ancient Greek had a council of the wise people. And they weren't uh, CEOs, so to speak, right? And they weren't uh, just politicians. There were experts on these issues, and there were wise people like Aristotle or like Stephen Hawking was, or you know, people who would be able to discuss these things. So we need professionals dealing with this. Direct democracy, in my eyes, is flawed to deal with this because of the speed. Yeah, Switzerland does everything well, but it goes up at the rate of like a bank. You're growing at the interest rate, so nothing terrible happens. But a lot of times, you miss out on you miss out on things early. That was my experience living there. But how do how do we handle that? Yeah, you want professional politicians, and yet I'd argue professional politicians it kind of encourages corruption and scumbags. Who wants to get into politics professionally, except for the ones who want to be politicians? Well, I, I wouldn't say that necessarily professional politicians. I want professional people dealing with those issues on a level that go, transcends uh, industry and science, but also goes into philosophy and ethics. Because I think that's where we're going to be deciding the future. Uh, we cannot leave that. I mean, right now, the story of the future is being written by the tech companies. And many of them are clients that book me for my speaking gigs. So it's, so I have that firsthand experience. You know, the, the people who tell the story about the future are not the countries. They're not the philosophers, except for maybe Noel Harari or so. But, but you know, they are IBM and Microsoft and Google and Facebook and Tencent. And we should not leave the story of the future up to companies who stand to make trillions of dollars selling their products if that future happens. Are you worried uh, about tech monopolies and uh, tech companies becoming more powerful and possibly controlling the world more than governments? Uh, that's already kind of the case. You know, I'm, I'm not necessarily worried because they're evil. I'm worried because they're so good 
and they are so fast and everything else is behind you know our ethics are behind our governments are behind in europe we can't agree on anything how to how to do anything together and and that will take a lot more time and money so i always say that we should spend at least the same amount of money on humanity than we spend on technology and and i think in that way we would have better information and better discourse on these issues and we shouldn't leave the future up to the ones who are going to write the code for quantum computing how do we do that though because politicians have the power and to give the power to someone else so once you have the power you don't really want to hand the reins away yeah i think i believe that's difficult of course but you know if you're talking i mean in europe we have a pretty good system that by and large most humanists uh, most uh, european citizens are humanists so we believe in a collective benefit we believe in distributing the benefit which is taxes uh, we believe that we should respect each other and of course there are many discussions about this but the u.s system is extreme capitalism that's basically what it is your corporate profit and that will not work here because corporate profit will sink the ship if it's just about that it's another 20 years and we're toast right because basically we're going to sell out humanity that's that's the whole plot and this this doesn't even have to be by design it just kind of happens because that's free free ranging capitalism and in china it's the same thing but it's the state running it so so yeah we're we're sort of stuck between those two extremes in europe i would say i would say the u.s has the shortest term perspective china has the longest term and europe is somewhere in the middle that that would be kind of my read on the situation i think the amount of control that you have is directly proportional to the the distance out you're able to think that's true but you know here in europe we we always we have a lot of great researchers who usually end up working in in the us or in china because of their skills of robotics and data science and so on but our story is that we're always going to be more careful with technology to make sure it can be controlled that the benefits are distributed while in the us when you have a new technology you go at it at full speed no matter what the side effects are because it's exciting and of course it makes money changing the world and so on and in china it's a state that does everything so it's kind of like that's a scary proposition if we're going to be in an arms race of artificial intelligence and human genome engineering and of course geoengineering as well but that would not be a good situation so this is why i'm saying we need to have a united states of europe uh, to answer together on these issues they're definitely more level-headed what would you give for the odds in the next 50 years of the the technology and forward speeding industries of the us and china leading to either some type of large-scale war or the breakup of one of those two countries? Well, I'm much more an optimist on this. I think what we're seeing now is a lot of hype about technology like AI that is over-promising but not really there yet. Uh, I mean, you know, what's the last what's the last time you spoke to a robot that sounded like a person? Uh, that That is hyped everywhere, but it's not really there. And so we're going to take longer. There's a lot of fear there, a lot of Hollywood stuff. And I think on the on the on the on the topic of China, if China wants to be a global power and they do want to be that, obviously, they will have to adapt on a, on a global level in terms of our ethics and policies and basic principles, which they currently are drifting towards in some sort of strange way. But, you know, basically, given the a huge amount of exponential change in 25 years or so, we'll probably end up with a sort of global government of not of a, a legal sort, but of, of a factual sort, right? Because these issues are not issues that we're going to solve by ourselves. I mean, they will require global collaboration. If we don't do that, it's going to look pretty dark because we're talking about things that we have to solve together, like we did nuclear energy or nuclear power. And, you know, it's working. And the same thing has to be done for all the other issues like AI and genetic engineering. And that's kind of inevitable. It is inevitable. It's A lot of these are games. And the question is whether or not it's a, it's a finite or an infinite or a infinite game. And that, that comes down to how the game gets played. Capitalism, a lot of times, is a finite game, which can lead to a lot of the problems we have. 
Well, I mean, we had a very limited game so far in that uh, capitalism, as we know it, is basically based on profit and growth and GDP and all that stuff, which is, you know, very straightforward definition of, of happiness is to, to dwell, right? <laughs> but, you know, that will not work in the future because now we're starting to sell ourselves. I mean, we are becoming the product, as we can clearly see with Facebook. And that is the product of AI, or so that's us. Right? And so... What we need to do is to say, let's expand to what we used to call people, planet, profit. You know, the the idea of saying that it has to do good on all three of those things. And that discussion is going on in many different levels, starting with Apple and Unilever and, of course, Patagonia and what have you. And that's kind of uh, that's kind of where everything is going. And I think in 20 years, we're going to get there. I think Apple's doing it tongue in cheek. They're doing it to rub junk on everybody else. I don't think that's really what they believe, just based off of well, the, product, the products they released and how they how they run their business. Let's put it this way. It's the least of the worst. <laughs> that's a that's a good way of putting it. Who's who's the best of the best when it comes to countries? Who's doing a good job? Well, I mean, okay, that's also a difficult question because it's, it depends how you measure it. But if we're looking at what's happening in Scandinavia, clearly Finland is doing a great job with that. Estonia is a digital country. Denmark has uh, really uh, struggled with immigration, but on the other hand, has a really powerful justice system. Switzerland is a is an island of peace. Uh, and some people would argue that's probably a little bit boring because of that too. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of examples of this. You know, I think in the end, it really comes down to creating a system to where we go beyond this idea of just, you know, more jobs, more money, more GDP. I mean, you know, J.F. Kennedy already said that 1960s, that GDP is the wrong measurement. Uh, and it's just, you know, if we pursue that now with all the other stuff that we're doing, that's going to be pretty dim. Oh, absolutely, because everyone has to drive like 100 cars because that's what drives GDP, right? So in terms of, in terms of the future, you've said it's more unknowable than ever. And I'm curious what you mean by that. I would agree as well in terms of the, the exponential tech layering on itself. Well, if you're looking at, uh, you know, science fiction is becoming science fact. Basically, every day there's a major breakthrough in something or the other, you know, whether it's CRISPR-Cas9 or, uh, or, or battery technology or, you know, uh, the next mobile network, or whatever. And it's, it's mind boggling. So now we're at the point where it's not just exponential, but also combinatorial, which means combining different sciences. So convergence, for example, of technology and biology and biotech means that basically uh, uh, med medical care and healthcare is becoming a tech business. And, and, and these things are all happening at the same time. So we have quantum computing, we have AI, we have virtual reality, uh, we have big data, we have cloud computing, and we have language recognition all at the same time. And so that basically means that while we have to be skeptical on some of it, but, you know, the, the amount of progress we're seeing is like, I mean, I can't, uh, I can't tell you often enough how I turn around and say, well, I didn't know this actually is working. <laughs> this actually is doable. And so I think it's safe to look at the next five, seven, ten years of obvious things, what we call the hard futures, the definitive future, like the end of oil and those kind of things. We can look at that and sort of feel it coming, observe it. But 50 years? I mean, you know, in the 1950s, if you were Arthur C. Clarke, you can talk about the internet. And he did. And that was doable. But today, 50 years, that's like anything, right? Anything could happen. So 10 years is what I, you know, generally look at. Are we crossing over the event horizon in terms of what is knowable and just the explosive amount of future possibilities? Well, it depends on what you do. You know, I'm not like the Jimi Hendrix of futurism that, that Alvin Toffler was, um, or I'm not a scientist. You know, my, my job is really to observe rather than to predict. So I don't see myself as a predictor. You know, I, I observe things that most people don't take the time to observe. And so therefore, I get a good feel. Like I wrote in my first book, The Future of Music, that music is becoming like water, which we got from David Bowie. But, uh, and, and, you know, 10 years later, we have Spotify. And that was completely obvious to us. But... 
you know, maybe not to others. And that's kind of what I do. I observe and then I, I sort of feel my way forward. And that's really kind of what my approach is. And that's a major problem with GDP as a driver or as the measurement of success and happiness, because as information becomes free and we start having less stuff, what exactly are we are we charging for? Well, Peter Diamandis said that in his great book, Abundance, you know, there's many other funny parts in the book, but, but this part is good. Uh, basically, things are becoming abundant, right? First, music and media, television, books, reading, driving, transportation, Uber, Airbnb, and then very soon banking, insurance, energy becoming abundant. And when things become abundant, then the whole capitalist idea of consumption is, is eventually dying because, you know, we can afford to pay everyone just to live because it's basically free. You know, that would just terribly go against my ethics if everyone is happy. So you've got a, <laughs> you've got a, you've got a book out, Technology versus Humanity, The Coming Clash Between Man and Machine. Where do you see us headed on that front? Yeah, it's a provocative title. It should have been, you know, the publisher convinced me to make you're it. Sw- you're Swiss and hate it, don't you? You want it to be much more conservative well actually i'm german so i'm 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 both german and swiss but um so i have two souls and even a third soul which is my half american soul uh, when i used to live there but basically i am convinced that we're looking at humanity on top of technology in many ways it's entirely doable the only thing that we need to do is to agree on what that means uh, and to agree on the rules of the game, which are dramatically changing. It's not that technology is bad, it's good, but it's morally neutral. It, it doesn't have any judgment. So if technology can turn us into paperclips, it would, because you know, it's, 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 there's no question about ethical values here. If we want technology to be exponential and ethical, we're going to have to build the frameworks, and very few people are looking at this, apart from actually building this stuff, is to put the other stuff in place that makes it ethical. I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, a startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity. It's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picarda fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full-service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com syndicate. How do we do that if we're not willing to say that in the Middle East, having a religion that allows you to torture women and do all kinds of terrible things because they're women? How, how are we able to come up with something collective about technology if we can't even agree on basic human truths like that? Yeah, well, that's that's really kind of apples and oranges. But it's a basic decision, for example, on the bottom line of the decisions. For example, should you have weapons that automatically kill people without human supervision? 99.98% of the world would agree, except for the ones making it the US and and the UK. So we can find those basic things. Like we have agreed on the nuclear weapons that we were not going to allow every country to produce their own weapons. That would have been the end of it. And so we've we've run a tight ship on this and it's been difficult, but it has worked. 
And so I think we should agree that an artificial general intelligence, a machine with an IQ of a million, should not be created that that mirrors a human in terms of consciousness or sentience. That would be extremely dangerous. And we should nevertheless use what I call IA, intelligent assistance, to further business and, and get things done. But there has to be a, a compliance on some of the basic things. And this is beyond, uh, you know, it's not about religion or beliefs. It's just very basic stuff that we can delineate what that means. But how do we do that in a winner-take-all scenario? So it, it, if we're racing for our lives and we're both in cars, neither of us are hitting the brakes. We're going as fast as we can. We're willing to do anything. In a lot of ways, AGI is like that. Because if you are the first company, the first government, the first terrorist group to achieve this, you can kind of win all games simultaneously. Yeah, but that was the same with the nuclear weapon. You know, we and, and we did have two bombs. You know, let's not forget how we got to that insight is by using it. And that that's a bad example. But, you know, afterwards, we, we basically said, okay, let's watch out here for a second. There's a bunch of countries who have this. But if we if we go further with this, and it's going to be used by everyone, we're, we're just going to, that's it, right? And I think if we do the same thing here and saying, okay, if China is going to develop a, a man-made weapon, a combination of AI and genetic engineering, and of course, all the military all over the place is working on this, right? there has to be a way of having a global supervision of how far we go, or if we go there at all, because it's an issue that applies to every single one of us. It's not an issue that that is good for your own power. It's not like you're going to build more submarines or something. You know? So, uh, and I think that is what we're dealing at dealing with right now. It requires global collaboration, like, you know, geoengineering, changing the weather. You're going to change the weather to have more rain. Well, it does happen to impact everybody else's weather. <laughs> so uh, these are survival, you know, existential issues that are basically on the horizon. It does. But if you think about it from the terms of let's create an AGI that can win at the stock market and win at the bonds market and win at all of that. I mean, that's most likely where something like this would be created. It would be the financial markets trying to do something to make lots of money because they don't necessarily yeah. have to feel the consequences normally. Yeah, but let's not forget, you know, we, we do have a lot of control and supervision in place, especially in the financial market, because if the entire stock market was run by an, by an AI or by a machine, it would be utterly useless for anyone because an official machine would actually not create that much money. It would only do it for the first two weeks uh, because after that, it would be automated, which would mean that nobody would have prediction on anything. It would just be a machine. Uh, and so there's many reasons why that wouldn't be a good idea and why that wouldn't work. But I grant you that we may need to have an incident like we had with Hiroshima uh, or, or, or uh, Fukushima, right? where we, we thought about nuclear power. We may need that as an incident to say, you know what, this is not a good idea if everybody just does what they want here. I think uh, we might need that as well. And I, I, I shudder to think what that would be, uh, like a global, you know, uh, disaster of the air of the airline traffic with an AI or a, a machine basically downing, you know, 10,000 planes or so, that sort of thing. But that really sounds like dystopia now. <laughs> so I, I'm hoping that we can avoid that. But you may be right with the argument. I don't know. I'm hoping not. I mean, you could just crash the stock market as well. We saw what happened with the housing crisis. How do you think, you've talked a little bit before about mega shifts, and I know this is something that you think a lot about. Yeah, you know, that's, this comes out of my work with many companies who talk about digital transformation, and I'm starting to hate the word now. It's kind of like a, a, a cookie cutter approach. Uh, we have to transform and then everything will be fine. But <laughs> So they talk about digitization, but then actually what's happening, and I've come up with 10 different things, and I actually have a, a free excerpt of the book online at megashifts.com that's available in 10 languages for downloading that chapter. The megashifts are actually 10 different ones. So digitization, of course, uh, virtualization, uh, cognification, which is to make things smart, what Kevin Kelly talks about a lot, robotization, uh, augmentation, and a few other, we used to laugh and they call them the Asians because they all end on Asian. But, uh, so they're, 
there are 10 of those. And when you when you take them all together, this is what you have to understand is how the future is going to change because all of those things are happening at the same time. So things are becoming smart. That's cognification. Things are going virtual, like music, films, television. That's virtualization. When you put them all together, you're starting to see where things are going, uh, both in good and in bad terms. You know, of course, can be seen from both different ways. How do you think about the future when there are so many individuals? You brought, you've brought up a couple, quite a few of them so far. Futurist focused on the future and trying to forecast it, predict it. How do you not be a me too futurist? How do you think differently in a world where everyone thinks they're thinking differently? Well, you know, it's, I don't know, it's hard to explain. I mean, I, I didn't become a futurist because I knew what a futurist was. Um, I kind of fell into it uh, doing internet startup stuff and digital music. And I realized very early that I was good at seeing the totally obvious and I was good at explaining that to my investors of what was going to happen. And, and it actually did happen because it was obvious. But I wasn't really good at realizing the business plan behind it. And I usually was 10 years too early. So oh, there's a the talent there. Well, I had like 10 different startups. One was called LicenseMusic.com. And the other one was called Sonific. And there were components of Spotify in there and uh, Getty Images on the licensing site. And it's a long story, but it wasn't wrong. It was just too early. And then I realized when I wrote my first book called The Future of Music in 2005, when I wrote the first book, I realized that I was quite good at seeing that coming and describing it. And that turned into a skill. And to explain hard things was also a skill that I learned. You know? So I'm, I'm unusual as a futurist. I don't really care about the word futurist in general. I think many people use it as a marketing tag. And, you know, I'm not into trends. I don't get excited about tech just because it's tech. Well, you know, I've been doing this a long time. So I have graduated into what I call now maybe more of a nowist, as Joey Ito says. Or, you know, I'm also a humanist. So I'm, I'm not just about all the techie stuff. I'm trying to balance it. Which is incredibly important because there's a lot of tech idealists out there that kind of just praise everything technology and aren't really able to see the, the, the consequences. Well, I think these days it's quite clear that in the next 10 years, we're moving very quickly to a world where basically anything is possible. 10 years for the computers to have unlimited computing power, 10 years, 2050, the singularity. So in my lifetime, I'll probably get to see this unlimited power, unlimited possibility. And when we all become as God, so to speak, parenthesis, right? when we all have unlimited power, then the question will be, what do we want to be? And we have to decide that now. We have to think about what we actually are looking for rather than you know what is possible because anything will be possible. And this kind of ties back to that quote initially. Um, tech isn't tech isn't what we seek, but how we seek it. So in terms of in terms of timing, I'm glad that you brought that up. So my background um, building businesses, a little bit of investing as well. And with investing with business, timing is everything. It's the difference between a thousand X return and going to zero. If your timing's wrong, you hit nothing. If your timing's right, maybe you're the next Uber. How do you think about timing? I know you said you've gotten it wrong a few times. You've gotten it right a few times. How do you know when now is the right time? Well, I think there's usually a question of experience. Of course, I wasn't experienced enough to see that back then because I was more confident I could change people's opinion quickly. When I when I got into, into digital music, it, it was basically just the record label cartels and it wasn't anyone else. I couldn't convince them to do anything because no matter what I said, they just weren't ready. And when Spotify came along, Daniel Ek figured out how to get them to come along. Well, it was painful, I'm sure, but they did come along. And so this is about experience. It's about you know not seeing yourself at the center of the earth, which you tend to do when you're younger. And that is 
of course, an extra skill. But generally speaking, timing is, is the result of, of observing better. So the companies I work with now, they get the advantage of me having looked at, you know, a couple hundred parallel cases. Uh, and so I can say, okay, this may not work in India, but it would work in Germany or in this industry. And then, you know, it's always a question of how you make the cultural match. Because many people are confusing technology and culture. They're saying, well, technology works, so we're just going to do this. But, you know, all success is based on culture, company culture, national culture, business culture, social context, stock markets, right? It's, a, it's about culture. And if you don't understand culture, you'll, you won't be successful. And if you don't understand culture, you can't create incredible technology. What, uh, what technology outside of what we've talked about do you think will be the most transformational 20 years from now? Well, of course, they, ha they all hang together. I think the most obvious one right now is uh, voice recognition, natural language processing, and image recognition. And we're at the point to where that's almost perfect. So in the very near future, we're going to speak to machines, they're going to speak to us, and they're going to become like pals and friends and people, basically. Uh, when you combine that with cognitive computing, the machine can speak, it can watch, it can analyze, it has an unlimited amount of computing power, it become it, it can become very real in terms of searching, doing stuff for me. So in less than five years, we'll be sitting at the table and just saying, hey, give me the projection of the following business case, use the parameters from this book, and the, use the 100 million data feeds, and 12 seconds later, have a response. Right? Does that scare you at all? It's not only there to help you, it's there to watch. Yes, well, it can obviously do both. Like like all technologies are powerful. They have dual-use technology, so that can be used for good and bad. When you take the Internet of Things, it's tremendously powerful by connecting everything so you can track and you can you can look at stuff and you can figure out better results and be more efficient. At the same time, it can create a giant panopticon, uh, which would be really terrible in the hands of the wrong people, including the wrong countries, the wrong states, the wrong tyrants, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, just like social media in the hands of other tyrants in certain countries has turned into a prosecution tool. So I think the ultimate answer with this is, you know, the, the change is coming, the possibilities exist. Now we need collaboration, we need supervision, and we also need some sort of process that says we're doing this because it's good for us and we're not doing this because it will not be good for us as a collective. Does and Europe have to start that? Does Europe have to start this because the U.S. is kind of just throwing away throwing away anything related? Uh, I have high hopes for the U.S. to do this, but it will not be, of course, with the current government. <laughs> um, I have high hopes for India doing those things and for Indonesia. But first and foremost, I think this is what Europe is made to do. We're made to have to, to stop looking at the past or the present, but to take the values that we have and project them into the future. And if anybody can craft a good story about the future, it should be us. I mean, the re Renaissance, right? The Everything that we've, did, we've done in Europe, we have huge history about that here. We just don't have the guts. Uh, and and we don't have the, we don't have enough uh, big countries, so we need to come together and create that. And I think that's where my my next sort of uh, book project goes in this direction of the United States of Europe, you know, which sounds like it like an ir ironic satire now, but <laughs> you know that's kind of where I'm heading with this because I think we have a great position to do that. So you said you don't think Europeans have the guts. Well, generally speaking, we are um, in Germany. We are producers. We we like to make things perfect. So if they're not perfect, we won't do it. In Switzerland, we want to avoid all the risks. So if it involves risk, we're not going to do it. In Italy, we're mostly about fun and food. And if it doesn't involve our Italian national heritage, we're not interested. <laughs> so so every country has their own little little uh, specialty. And and generally speaking, we're too saturated. You know, we're too comfortable. We're not looking to reinvent. And that is changing now. In Berlin, it's changing here. 
in in uh, in, in Lausanne. It's changing in so many places, and I I really think that a bit of the American attitude of you know the sky is the limit would be a very good thing to have here. But in America, it's the total opposite, which is like the sky is the limit, and everything else can go, and you know you can die, and nobody will pay any attention. Speaking of the sky is the limit, how do you think about this new space race shaping up? Yeah, I'm not that hot on the space stuff. I think it's inevitable that we do this because, like I said, you know, quantum computing. We're probably we're probably going to end up set, sending an AI out to, the, to space to do that for us. So yeah, I think it's interesting, but I, I the space tourism stuff, I think I could care less. Uh, exploring other spaces, that's coming, but clearly it won't be us. It'll be the machines who do that for us, uh, by and large. I think the tourism is just the means to an end. You got to sell the expensive phones before you can make the mass market stuff. It's just hitting scale. Yeah, it could be. But you know, again, it's I think we have more urgent things to solve <laughs> than that. So I'm, I'm not that interested in it. But I think, hey, you know, who am I to say that this is not a good idea? It probably is, but I'm, I just haven't tuned into that very much. What are the three biggest problems you think humanity faces right now? I think the uh, three biggest problems is that we uh, we are obsessed with an ancient model of economy, pretty much everywhere in different variations. So we're pursuing this idea of profit and growth, and that's killing us. So we need to invent what some people have deemed you know, post-capitalism, sustainable capitalism, the Star Trek economy, whatever you want to call it. You know, that's a big issue because without incentive on that side, uh, it, it just isn't going to move. You can do as many good things as you want, but the stock market will keep asking Facebook to make more money. And that's why it's turned into an AI. End of story. Right? So Zuckerberg can't change Facebook without changing the economic model of the stock market, and that won't happen. So that's it, right? Can't do anything. What do you think about Elon wanting to take uh, wanting to take uh, Tesla private? Now, he didn't make it and got sued out the wazoo for it. But what do you think about companies potentially doing that so they do have that control? I think that's probably not a bad idea. I, you know, I, I like what Elon is doing and I like his work and he's obviously kind of a genius in many ways. I, I, I don't really look at the markets at this way. I think that we, in order to have a functioning stock market, we have to go back to the original idea, which is to believe in a company and that it can make money, that it can do good, that it can do the right thing, that it can be a good entity. Or, or as uh, I think a philosopher once said, a person of good character. <laughs> and, and, and this is where we go back to when we think about people, planet, profit or people, planet, prosperity, as I say. Uh, and that is basically the direction that we have to go in. And I, I see that discussion popping up. So that's the first point. The second point, I think the, the really big challenge is for us in that regard, that for the next 20 years, we're looking at eating what we have uh, sown as far as climate change is concerned. The next 20 years will be absolutely horrifying on that topic. Uh, in 20 years, we can probably go backwards. We can probably solve it. We can probably have unlimited energy. But the next 20 years, we're going to have to put up with what we have created. You think 20? I've heard much longer time horizons. It's basically when you're driving a car, even after you take off the take off the gas, you keep coasting for quite a while. Yeah, well, there are a lot of scientific discussion around this, but in the next 10, 15, 20 years, we're going to switch 100% renewable energy. That's kind of, that doesn't mean that the old stuff is going to go away. Obviously, the CO2 is still there. The PPMs will be 500 or something. But at the same time, we will not add anymore because it will be not economically viable. And we're going to invent things like CO2, uh, um, the, um, uh, the, the uh, uh, what do we call it, the, uh, the cleaning up process, right? So uh, these things are already cooking that we can actually get CO2 out of the atmosphere. I'm quite confident on that. But for the next 20 years, the results of what we have created will, you know, will cost a lot of money and will cost, uh, well, of course, will also create new jobs, I suppose. <laughs> So that's my second really big concern. The third one is that we we weaponize what we are inventing, primarily artificial intelligence and 
genetic engineering and geoengineering so that we inadvertently or advertently or just by accident, like Facebook has become a challenge to democracy by accident in parenthesis, that we do these things and they have the disastrous output. I think I'm much more worried about the inadvertent causes. I think there are definitely players that would want to create weapons or negative impacts from some of the technologies. But I think I think the quote is very is very prescient. Man's man's gr- uh, reach exceeds his grasp. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, the I think the way that we've always learned how to do that is by realizing the implications and also having examples and and so we're more we're actually more reactive than proactive. Uh, in some cases, I think that can be learned. So I, I do have hope for this, but I think the only way forward is is going to be a new form of economy and a quasi-global council of the wise people or government, if you want, a sort of global government of a sort that deals with the very large issues we're facing. And I think this will be a very, very long process. And, and this kind of idea of everybody doing their own and, and guarding their own turf is, is going to be absolutely ludicrous in 10 years. Basically a UN that's not powerless. Well, we didn't really have the reason to do all of those things until now because uh, because the tech wasn't there and the challenge wasn't as big you know ai has been looked at for 50 years never actually worked and now it's quite clear it is essentially doable to create such a machine uh, in the next decade or so and is it is uh, you know com- uh, countries are looking at weaponizing it so that's clear that we have to have uh, a will to act on this i'm very skeptical skeptical about modern approaches towards trying to create artificial general intelligence i my background is engineering and th- there's one quote that kind of always comes up and it, it, it's kiss keep it simple stupid and it's almost always that the simplest solutions are the most elegant and complex and i feel like we have a very complicated solution that we're trying to shove more and more power into yeah that could be you know but but uh, i mean there are many fractions of ai and if you're looking at the subheaders machine learning and deep learning uh, then you can see that with deep learning that is really where all of the momentum is coming from uh, and that's actually a pretty old science in many ways but now that we're going to lose restrictions like we will have live data from anything pretty much anything uh, and 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 systems need the data that we didn't have until now and we're, we're going to connect everything the internet of things and then we're going to have a quantum computer and then we'll have unlimited energy to run the computers so i mean no matter how you look at it all of the uh, the stuff that used to hold us back is going to fall by the wayside and just to clarify guys we're not saying skynet is coming we're just saying the future is increasing more increasingly more unknowable than ever well i'm i'm, I'm i don't think you know again we should not start from the basis of fear because that's primarily based on on fiction entertainment hollywood scenarios i think that many components of what we're looking at they're not coming together yet they're not out of control they can be abused they can be used as a weapon but it's not like we're sitting here right now and saying okay we've got the equivalent of a nuclear bomb here next week you know we don't have the oppenheimer moment yet uh and i think we have time to coordinate this when we see it coming including the impact on work and employment that we definitely need to look at and there's only one way forward, which is to say that you know we embrace technology, we don't become it, and that's also a big header in my book. You know, this idea of saying that you know we we can't do really much else than to embrace technology to a certain level, but not to the level of becoming technology. What scares me about that Oppenheimer moment is I remember there was an interview or something with someone on the team. I, I don't remember the details very well, but essentially the day before the technology was completed, they asked him if they ever thought it would be doable, and he said he probably didn't think it would be doable. A day later, it was done, and that's something that is less exponential than this. I think technology progresses despite what we think. Yeah, I'm... Uh... I, there, are, there are quite a few differences uh, from the nuclear bomb scenario to AI. Uh, 
Uh, of course, you need plutonium to make a make a bomb, uh, and that's a lot more work than than, make, than writing code. Um, so it's it's pretty hard to make a bomb. It's probably a lot easier to program something that would be quite evil. But you know, I think the the fact is that with collaboration, I think we can make this work in a positive way and minimize the the negative benefits. It may have to be after there's an incident because of the implied logic to act on. I mean, you know, Oppenheimer only worked on the nuclear bomb because he didn't want the Germans to have it first. That was his entire argument. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't have, have cared that much, right? And of course, he didn't expect the government would actually use it. So yeah, I mean, there's a, a bunch of lessons to learn from history here. Definitely. Do you think humanity will merge with AI or robotics in the in the foreseeable future? You know, I think the answer on that is I think we probably can, technically speaking, 50 years. In uh, technical terms, we can connect our neocortex to the internet. We probably can. It will take a lot longer than we think to actually make it work without killing people. But I think it's doable. The question is, do we want that? And should we? And my answer is that, again, I think we should not do that. I think we should keep a, a, a strong line between our existence and the existence of technology. If we're going to have machines that will explore the, uh, uh, in the cosmos for us, then by all means, let's send the machines. I don't think we should become half a machine so that we can do that better. I think we can keep the difference. I think there's one flaw with your question. I don't think it's, do we want that? I think the question is, does someone want that? And does someone with enough resources want that? That's why I think it's it's nearly impossible to stop because a lot of that stuff, you, you just need the resources. Well, but you know, we, we did have that issue in the past. We did have people with with lots of resources, and they did not succeed in doing you know only what they wanted to do. I mean, we have these issues on a daily basis, whether it's Ebola or virus or viral warfare or chemical weapons or you know all that. You know, we have lots of bad actors who want to do this. But that this wouldn't be a bad actor. This would be, let's say, I don't know. You can use the example for um, essentially biotech, for genetic engineering. We can play the same example out and say, okay, genetic engineering, we know this is unethical because it'll create yada yada problems. So it's banned worldwide. That's all good and well. But if I find out tomorrow that my kid has cancer, I don't care what any of the laws are. I'll go to any one black market that's necessary. To yeah, but, but that's that's actually, that would be completely wrong to do that because what we want is we want to use the benefit of technology, for example, in figuring out how to cure or prevent more prevent than cure really but to prevent cancer we can probably learn that and we can develop technologies which of course we should also do together and then the same technology can be used to do other aberrations with it right uh, like like it like we always do and so what we need to do is to we need to get the benefits and make sure that we can keep that in a system to where we don't have this completely rampant development of negative use like super soldiers right and and this is also a question of social contracts for example you could say well you know i have an, a propensity for diabetes i'm going to change that gene so I will never get diabetes. And that's probably doable. And then on the other hand, you could say, I'm going to have kids and they'll be twins. And now I can program them to be incredibly intelligent just by making the small incision, you know, or, you know so to speak, <laughs> right? Uh, and so the question really is, what is right or wrong? And, and what should be okay? What should be so okay? Or what should be a response in the case of, an, of a disease rather than in the case of a design issue? Those are totally different cases. So I'm with you on this. If we can save a single person from cancer by getting genetic engineering going, I'm all for it. I just don't want that same tool to be used uh, to create a, a breed of super soldiers. I would agree. My argument was more the tool will be created and used. The question is just what it's used for and if it's above the table or below the table. Yeah, but you know, the control of the tool, is a, that is the key issue. And if it's controllable, I don't know. We may eventually end up at the place to where machines control the tools because we've not been able to control the machines that do. Because you can only imagine a machine with an IQ of a, of a million would have figured out every possible way that you could unplug it from from power. It would have already you know, mapped out the next thousand 
thousand years of your efforts <laughs> to disconnect you. And so we wouldn't have much of a chance there. But I, I think this is something where, in principle, we should have a moratorium on, on artificial and general intelligence, not on AI by itself, but on the application of the actual use of it. I think it would be beneficial to do both. But I think, I think the big takeaway from this entire conversation is we need to have more conversations about where we're headed and the ethical issues that potentially face us. Absolutely. I think the this conversation has to be number one and it has to be public. And I think every politician, every mayor, every public official needs to know about what's coming and why it's coming and why it's good to know about it. And we have to decide together rather than, you know, people just going forward because they are the biggest tech companies with the biggest pockets in the world. Amen. If you guys agree with this, make sure you share around the podcast. Garrett did a great job. Disruptors.fm. Share it around, especially if you know any politicians. We've all seen what happened when congressmen talked to uh, talk to Zuckerberg. They don't really know what's <laughs> happening whatsoever. We need to have these conversations, guys. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks for coming. And before you go, Gerd, where's yeah. the best place for people to find you and learn more about the books? Well, I think if you type my name, G-E-R-D, on, on Google, uh, you'll find the gastrointestinal reflux disease first. But I'm right after that. <laughs> so it's uh, GerdTube is my YouTube channel. So G-E-R-D tube.com. I have like 500 hours of video there. My book is at techvshuman.com, techvshuman.com. But again, if you just Google my name, Gerd, and then technology humanity, you'll find everything you want, including free downloads. And much of my stuff is available online. Thanks Enjoy. for coming on. Yeah, thank yeah, you. It's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. I really wish we could have caught up when I was in Switzerland, but maybe next time. <laughs> we will do that. Yeah. Yep. Cheers, guys. If you guys enjoyed this, you know what to do. And until next time, go make it happen, I guess. Peace. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.